It's so easy to be seduced by the Italian way of life. Long lunches, great food, weather, wine, and all of August off on holiday. Rob Patchett fell for it in a big way, and a gap year turned into nine years that would change his life. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. What Rob learned in Italy would stay with him for the rest of his career. Even when he returned to his hometown, he had acquired a touch of Host Italia, that perfect combination of hospitality and bella figura that usually only Italians are born with. Now he's with us today to explain how he went from North Yorkshire to the Cotswolds Distillery, where, as regional sales associate, he brings that attitude to their award-winning spirits. So I'm from a really, really obscure part of East Yorkshire, right out on the coast. Um, it's past a city called Hull, which most people know for all the wrong reasons. Uh, tiny little farming village, um, grew up on a farm. And then uh, at age 19, you know, I always went skiing with my father every year and we always had a great time. And then um, at 19, I just didn't really want to go to university yet, did the gap year like everyone else, um, decided to do a ski season in Italy and just caught the bug. Loved being over there, loved the entire lifestyle and decided to stay. It's hard not to fall in love with Italy. Yeah, stayed for nine years. <laughs> Where were you exactly? Uh, so I was predominantly um, in the winters. I do ski seasons outside of Turin. So Clavier, Sestriere, Sazidou, Montgenève in France as well. Um, in the summers, I would either stay in the Alps or I would go to Lake Garda. And then every now and again, we'd just go and do random summer expeditions. Like I lived in Denmark and worked in a, a fruit farm in Denmark for a summer. Um, and were you a ski instructor? I mean, were you that good? Is that so? What you were I doing? did. I did end up by the end. I did a little bit of snowboard instructing um, illegally because I didn't have a full qualification. So um, sorry to all the colder ski in France. But yeah, I did some snowboarding instructing, but predominantly I was running cocktail bars and hotel bars for um, English companies. And then I started working for Italian companies um, as a cocktail bartender. And so, all right, back. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you knew you were going to stay in Italy, yeah. did you know you wanted to be in hospitality or was that something that was kind of an easy job to get? Hospitality was always my thing, really. I, I, I got a job as a pot washer when I was 15 years old in a pub. And by the time I left left home at 19, I was working in pubs nonstop. I was front of house, I was behind the bar, I was in the kitchen, I was chefing, I was doing whatever I wanted to really. I just loved it. I loved being around people. I thought it was fun and yeah, it was easy as well. So it was a natural progression to get a job abroad doing hospitality. Did you like the making of the food and the, you know, the food. Yeah, I found making cup. drinks fascinating. You did, even yeah. at, at that young age, as, as yeah. soon as you could. Mm. Yeah, there was, I always worked around people that were, what I thought at the time, very good at what they did, making drinks. And I don't know why, it was just an inert fascination. And it was quite serendipitous, really. I, my first ski season, I'd been out there for two months. Um, I was what they call a host in a hotel. And so I was housekeeping and working as a waiter and that sort of thing. Um, went out skiing, got cut up by a ski school when I was on the mountain. 
rolled, my ski didn't come off, I tore my cruciate ligament, and um, at the same on the same day, the bartender in the hotel got fired. Oh, I it couldn't, was meant to be. It was meant to be, yeah. <laughs> so they put me on the bar because I refused to go home. So, uh, yeah, I was hobbling up and down the bar for my first season, but then that was it. Were well, you thinking, I'm so bummed? And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, this is good. Yeah, it was, it was a roller coaster in the space of six hours. I was like, I've hurt my knee to my knee is massive to I can't walk to, oh, my God, I've got to go home to, um, right, I'm now working on the bar. And, yeah, it was a crazy day. Mm-hmm. But I kind of look at that day as the day that I was able to really have a turning point. And I think life's all about turning points, and that was definitely one of those. Um I mean, if I look back, I, w- I was awful. I was absolutely awful. I remember. What do you remember? What kind of things you were making? Um, I remember trying to make a screaming orgasm for someone, and I thought I'd try and do some flair, and some vodka came out of the bottle and splashed me in the eye, and so I was one-eyed and couldn't see while trying to make a drink while limping. Yeah, while limping around, and yeah, it wasn't very sunny, so we were all pale, and there wasn't a hairdresser, so we we're all cutting our own hair, and it wasn't. It was the best time of my life, but we, no, I did It wasn't massively glamorous. No, but. not at all. Not at all. Um, and I remember I wasn't a great bartender initially. I was actually quite rude. I had a bit of a chip mm. on my shoulder. I was 19. So not hospitable? No. In your hospitality? No, no. Which was looking back. I look back on the way I spoke to some people. And I think, what an idiot. Maybe they thought you just couldn't speak Italian very well. Or... Well, that was also true. <laughs> <laughs> that was also true. Um, but so what do you think made you stay there? Just loving that life? The people I was with, I made some friends that year that I still see to this day. Um, we went through quite a lot. And so the people, the lifestyle as well. I think Italian lifestyle, as you, can, as you know, is very, very unique. You know the the long lunches, the 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 um, the ethos around dining, the ethos around drinking, and just the lifestyle. Mm. I just wanted to stay out there and be amongst it, um, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I persevered and actually became not a rude, limping, crap bartender. <laughs> One-eyed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it got a lot better. I, uh-huh. I, I'm, I've I've always got a thirst for learning. I'm always trying to learn more about something. Um, you know, hence the reason why I'm always listening to podcasts. I'm always reading books. I'm always trying to learn more about something. So there's always going to be a progression. And with bartending, you know, it went from that stage to then I got a job in a, it was a private members underground Soho-esque cocktail bar just outside of Milan. A friend of mine had been there for a couple of years. He drank at the bar, the hotel bar that I was running. This is a little later on, Mm. only 2004 but it was amazing the entire bar was designed by the chief designer of Swatch Uh, it was at the base of the Matterhorn so he designed the entire interior around a poem that apparently Shakespeare had written about the Matterhorn Um, and in 2004 it was quite ahead of its time you know we used to have to go in and do our fresh juices our infusions make our own rum blends uh, making our own syrups and I look back and I think, wow, we're really ahead of our time. You know, fruit mise en place was an hour's, hour's worth of prep. And you weren't even in a big city. No. No, 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 not you, at all. You know, this is... But it was odd because we used to have a lot of Milan celebrities. Mm-hmm. I remember popping up in a few magazines over there. And you'd, you'd see like the 
the Big Brother contestants and stuff like that. Mm. And I had no idea who these people are. <laughs> Italian celebrities are so obscure, but they're everything over there. <laughs> so, yeah, we used to deal with a lot of people like that. And um, it was a brilliant experience. I learned so much. So you were a really young convert to the drinks way of life. Yeah. I mean, this was going to be, from what you say, this was going to be your career from that first day of... Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, eye blinding, etc. Yeah, from eye blinding all the way through to, uh-huh. um, yeah, designing drinks, putting drinks on menus, making things from fresh ingredients. You and know. were you able to do all of that in Italy? Do you saw your career progress? Yeah, yeah, in I'm, Italy, yeah, doing absolutely. those. It was it was a case of always learning, trying to get better. But then I'd say in between from two thousand to two thousand and four, I really did try and actually get better technically get better at hospitality as well try and get rid of that chip on my shoulder and just be a better bartender and actually focus all my attention on being a good bartender as well do you well. think it was a mentor that helped you or yeah, was, was it yeah. you you realizing this as you got older um i think i think whenever you you need to find a source of inspiration and a source of knowledge you always have to have a mentor-esque figure um and, you know, for me, when I was working in the um, in the club, it was called Bianconilio, which is the white rabbit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked with a guy called Jimmy Denman, who he'd been on the scene for quite a long time. He'd worked um, he'd worked all over the world and he was very, very good at what he did. And he was just a fountain of knowledge. He was your stereotypical bartender that knew a little bit of everything and had an opinion on even more. So he was a great source of inspiration and knowledge. Um, we spent a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, after we parted ways, he went on to work at Mahiki in Dubai. And I think he got out of the industry about three or four mm-hmm. years ago. But he was he was a big part of it. I mean, there have been others as well. But I think from being a good bartender and really knowing how to make drinks traditionally, from a technical sense of doing things uh, properly in Italy, you know, you can't. You can't be a cowboy behind the bar in Italy because everyone needs that qualification to be mm-hmm. behind the bar. So, yeah, doing things technically, doing things traditionally, but then also having a progressive nature of drinks. And again, this is all back in 2004. I speak to bartenders now, and most of them were born in 2000. Right. <laughs> I guess so. No, you can't think about that. No, I try not to. But I was thinking that you were going to say, you know, the, the cocktail culture wasn't even born. The cocktail yeah, culture right? was in its infancy. <laughs> Very much so. Definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I don't have regrets, but I think about, you know, if I'd have just come back and actually worked in London around that time. Oh, you can't think about that. No, no. What you, I mean, probably what, they weren't doing the same things anyway. So No. Um, why did you think after nine years that it was time, well... Oh, should I ask this? Where did you go after nine years? Um, I actually came home from for a family emergency. My mother was really ill. Mm. Um, it's fine. Mm. She's fine now. Okay. We got. We all got through it. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I got a phone call the day after my birthday, uh, two thousand and two thousand eight, two thousand nine, something like. Yeah, yeah. Um, came home and had to make a plan. I had to figure something out and. Being that our family is from a very, very rural, obscure part of England, where there isn't a drinks culture, where I could really invest my time in what I'd learned, I ended up opening a pub for a guy who um, liked to invest his money in buying pubs and restaurants. And, you know, my hospitality knowledge and being able to run establishments, he saw me as a, a good opportunity. Did you have to stay close yeah, to your family? Yeah, I, I, uh-huh. I stayed close to my family for about a year. Um mm-hmm. 
And so how close was the pub? Oh, 20 minutes. Oh, really close? Yeah, 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I did that for about three and a half years. And did you see a difference between the pub culture? Oh, hugely. It, I mean, the irony is the pub, the pub that I went back to run was the one that I was a pot washer in when I was 16 oh, years old. Oh, funny. So a lot of the villagers remembered me and, you know, they, it was quite an easy transition in that respect. Mm-hmm. And it was a completely different culture in which you were building around a community and, you know, you, you had... I remember when we opened, I tried to I tried to implement a lot of things that I'd learned in Italy and learned very quickly that you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Not in a tiny village where there's about 3,000 people. No one cares about the Negroni. No, <laughs> I think I made two martinis in two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, three and a half years, sorry. Um, but it, again, good learning curve because we took a pub that was 17th century, dilapidated, and we rebuilt it completely from the interior we got it up to a rosette standard of food. We were winning awards left, right, and center. Um, I mean, we were making noise in a very small pond, mm. but it was it was good just because you learn more about being a business, not a business owner, but running a business from a financial standpoint, things like that. Um, and interesting what you said about the community. Yeah, I mean, it was very much about working with the community instead of them working around you. Mm-hmm. So very much doing things like we used to do carol services and nativities at Christmas time and things like that. And then in the summer we'd have various garden parties and, you know. Well, I think that things are coming back to that. Yeah. I mean, they say Waterstones used to be run. Every Waterstone was exactly the same. Then a few years later, a new CEO said, no, no, no. Everything should be done, you know, at a community level. So if your community on King's Road wants you know, more children's books, you should, you, you, we should now, you know, develop those communities. And I feel that every bar is in a certain area. Yes, some people come to a bar because it's world famous, but you, they still have the community that comes very often and they should coddle that community and, you know, in I agree and develop completely. it. I agree mm. completely. I think the sense of community, mm. no matter whether you're in a huge city like London um, a suburb of London or in an obscure part of the UK. I think community is everything. Mm. Um, I think yeah. it might sometimes get forgotten along the way, yeah, probably well, I, if something I, is really super famous. I, I, I do believe that, I mean, we're in London right now. We're in the epicenter of what could be deemed the capital of the drinks mm. market. And I like to go to bars where I feel comfortable. I know a couple of people and you feel like you belong there as opposed to going somewhere that's super fancy, high staff turnover, they don't know mm-hmm. who you are. Sense of community, yes. no matter how large a scale it is, is always something that's really important to mm-hmm. people. And I think when I was at the pub, that was quite a, a learning curve again, because it was realigning what my focus within hospitality was. It wasn't about executing things with perfection. It was actually making people feel welcome and make them feel part of something. Mm-hmm. So that was that was quite key for me, but there was only so far and so much I could do. And I was still relatively young as well. So I decided to try and replicate what I'd done in the north, down in the Midlands. Um, didn't work as well. I think I should backtrack, actually. I well, had, I was going to say, yeah. did you always have one foot in your hometown and one foot still with... In Italy, you know, were you always thinking, 
I'm going to go back to Italy. I'm going to go back to Italy. No, I, I, I'd put that one to bed, to be honest with you. I mean, mm. I still go back all the time. But yeah, I'd put that one to bed just mm. because I needed, to, I needed to have something to focus on moving forward. And I think Italy, whilst it's wonderful, it's not easy to try and create something new for yourself. I mean, I think that's why we see a lot of Italian people within hospitality mm. coming back to England. Um, mm-hmm. So Italy's so always... You so were, you were set on staying yeah, in the yeah, UK yeah, for yeah. the time being. Yeah, so I didn't then... know what I wanted... I was completely open to anything that came, you know, arose in front of me as an opportunity. But yeah, I, I sort of put Italy to bed a little bit. Mm-hmm. So staying in the UK, you had you did everything that you could do in your hometown. Yeah. You were looking. Well, to, or was thing, someone poaching you to come and do something? Well, one thing that I did do while I had the pub was I had an argument with a lady about wine, and it came off. I came off really badly, and. I think whenever you've got a thirst for knowledge and you have a conversation or an interaction with someone where you make a fool of yourself, you do try and then compensate by learning as much as you can about that. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I, I put myself through one in Spirit Education Trust, the WSET. I did one, I did two, I did three, you know, and it's, it's like anyone that gets a new qualification. You think you have all the knowledge mm-hmm. in the world about something. And I thought, I'm going to be a sommelier instead. So I actually put myself through the uh, Guild of Master Sommeliers um, accreditation as well. So I did the introductory and the certified as well. Um, and so, yeah, I was a fully qualified sommelier in... But did you fall in love with wine? Um, I did, yeah. I definitely did. Um, I love everything about wine. I love the agricultural part of it. I love the science of it. I love the execution of delivering wine. I love the nuance of it. I love the stories that that people tell. Um, And when I moved down to the Midlands and didn't quite get the opportunity I needed in the on-trade, I actually did a complete switch. So I was able to go and work within wine retail. So I could sell really, really expensive, wonderful wine, but not have to wear a suit Hmm. and, you know, do all the sommelier floor work. Um, And that, again, was a really good turning point for me because not only was I able to use all the wine knowledge that I'd I'd gathered over the years through all the accreditations and everything, I was able to sell wine. The the wine shop were really good about sending me to wineries around Europe as well. So I got to go to Champagne and Rioja and Bergerac, um, various other places. And then they also had a small spirit selection and having a cocktail background and then obviously knowing a lot about Italian spirits because that is mm-hmm. a world into itself. I was able to throw myself at spirits as well. So started doing a lot of the, took over the buying of the spirits. Gin boom was also happening around then. So doing a lot more around building the gin portfolio, working with distilleries, um, creating drinks, things like that. Yeah, it was it was quite an immersive experience for me. I was able to do quite a lot. I don't even think you had time for this, but did you ever miss the actual behind-the-bar chatting to punters bit about being a bartender? Yeah, yeah. Still do every now and again. Mm-hmm. I, do, uh, I do takeovers from time to time. And first, the first hour, you're just in the flow. You're <laughs> mixing drinks, you're shaking, you're smiling, you're laughing, you're having fun. And then after that first hour, it's like, oh, my feet hurt. Oh, my back hurts. Oh, my back hurts. My shoulders. Oh, I forgot how. And then you also forget that working behind a bar, you have to deal with drunk people again. 
So that's always that's always something that people forget. Yeah, selling very expensive French wine probably you don't have to deal with that very much. No, I mean you don't see them drunk. They exactly. Yeah, (laughs) retail was wonderful. It's like there's your booze. Okay, you can go now. Right, (laughs) which was wonderful. Um, Yeah, so I mean, with the retail thing, it was great because obviously with the gin boom, I was just able to throw myself into it and create relationships with distilleries, but then try all of these different things, learn more about whiskey, um, learn more about all different spirit categories and things like that. So it was a completely educational, immersive experience. Mm -hmm. Again, feeding the brain on whatever I needed, um, whilst also fully involving myself in wine as well, which was wonderful. Um, And yeah, it was was a really good experience. The retail world is tough, though. It's really Mm -hmm. tough. Um, So whilst it was a great platform and something that I did need, it was never going to be in my future. That's got to be said. So did you, did you feel drawn back into the spirit world, as we say? Um, I was, I was creating relationships with a lot Mm. of people. You know, I was working with various brands and having quite personal relationships. Um, you know, I, I had a really good relationship with the guys from four pillars. I thought they were wonderful. Um, Ian at Pink Pepper, he, um, he came and did some events with us and he was brilliant. Um, there was another distillery locally that, you know, we did quite a lot. I'm sure it must have been super exciting because you see all of this activity and maybe part of you thinks that, wait, I want to be a part of that. I was scrolling through Twitter Uh and I saw that a whiskey distillery had opened 20 minutes from where I lived. So I got in touch with them via Twitter and said, hi, I'm from this shop and can I can I come and see you guys? And they'd been established for six weeks, and they were like, made... "We love you." Yeah, and I was like, "This is amazing liquid, and can I buy lots to sell in the shop?" And they were like, "Oh my god, thank you so much!" And yeah, that was the relationship, and that was the beginnings of um, Cotswolds Distillery as well. Oh, so yeah. that was Cotswolds. Yeah, I went for a visit, tasted, loved. So you've been there since. Pretty much the beginning. I've had a relationship with them yes. since the beginning. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I remember back then, it you know there was six people working there, um, and they were just trying to establish their tours and get get investment and things like that. You know, it was it was a seedling of what it is today, mm-hmm. and we're only four and a half years old. But yeah, I like to think that whilst I wasn't part of it, I was because I was one of the earlier customers and a huge advocate as well, um, and. I always have respect for people that pay attention to detail, have true passion in what they do, and are really, really quality driven. And that mm-hmm. that goes for whether it's a bartender, whether it's a restaurant, a chef, um, someone that does a podcast. <laughs> you know, I, I just think that you can always tell when people are fully invested in what they're trying mm-hmm. to create. And I like to back people like that. I think it's a, it's a good perspective to have. Um, so, yeah. Did you slide from your role selling um, in, in retail to Cotswolds or was there any time in between no, that yeah. you did something different? You no, slid. Yeah, that was it. I, uh, I, got, I got to a point where I didn't really want to be in the retail world anymore. May have put some feelers out. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a course of six months. It didn't happen overnight. But yeah, Cotswolds did say to me, you know, if you want to come on board, then we should start a conversation. Um, And we did start a conversation and organically we got to a point where we both wanted to work with each other and 
yeah, so that was 2017 I joined them. Mm-hmm. And I haven't looked back. And, yeah. So tell me what, what you saw in them. Why out of all the gins did you feel that they were doing you know, the right in inverted commas thing for you to get involved. What was it about them that attracted you so much? Short version, whiskey. (laughs) But they didn't start off with whiskey. Yeah. They did start off with whiskey. Oh, I'm sorry. No. uh, Because obviously their gin is so famous as well as their whiskey. So I just assumed that the gin was first. Yeah, everyone does. Oh, I still get it even to this day. Even to this day, people turn around to me and go, oh, you're making whiskey now. That's nice. Thank God I didn't say that. <laughs> it's fine. It's absolutely fine. No. Only because gin, obviously, is so quick to make. And the gin whiskey is the is one that you sit around and so wait for. So quick to make. And whiskey, we sit around right. for, as you said. But um, they, when they started, they whiskey, whiskey. Whiskey first. Whiskey first. Dan, mm-hmm. who um, founded the company, he, you know, he is, he's a brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. He had a really, really great career in the city. You know, he started off in uh, in New York and then he went to Paris. You know, he set up offices in Paris. He was a finance broker. Um, very, very well established. But I think a lot of people that work within those roles where you can be really, really successful and on paper have everything that you want, they always feel that they're lacking something tangible that they can have an emotional investment in. Mm-hmm. And he was always a huge fan of whiskey. He used to go to Whiskey Live in Paris when he worked over there. He'd go on trips to Scotland with friends and, you know, they'd go around all the distilleries and, you know, he even bought barrels at some of the distilleries as well. And um, he has a place in the Cotswolds and he was looking out over the hills. We always tell the story, but it is as it is. He was seeing barley fields and he thought, why are people not making whiskey in England? Uh, he saw an opportunity um, he also saw that the craft spirits were on the rise in America and they were up here, you know, thanks to uh, Jared Salmon Fairfax at Sipsmith, we were able to have the, uh, what is it, the craft, the minimum amount of distillation mm-hmm. for craft distillers was then levied and he saw an opportunity. So, yeah. And also, I mean, talk about serendipitous. He wanted Forsyth copper pot stills to make whiskey and it was a three year waiting list and a whiskey distillery of a similar size to us fell through financially. And Forsyths were able to produce the stills within three months for us. Oh, that is lucky. That is so lucky. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we started distilling whiskey in October 2014. And we started distilling gin side by side. But yeah, as you say, gin takes four days for us to make. So we were able to have gin out on the market straight away. And then just have whiskey ticking over in the background. So you really just launched your whiskey. You know, uh, 2017, October 2017, we poured the first dram at Whiskey Live Paris. Um, and it's been an incredible ride. Mm-hmm. And I joined the team in May, which means that I was pre-whiskey. So you only ever launch your first whiskey once. <laughs> and it was it was an amazing experience as well. We all got called in from the road to bottle the first batches of whiskey. So we were all there and we had a tiny little bottling plant at that point as well. So we were all crammed in this little room and I was rinsing bottles and then we were hand-loading them and filling them and then capping them. And, 
you know, we had a little break and we all sat around and had some fish and chips outside the distillery while we were doing it. And yeah, I'll never forget that experience. I got the distiller to sign my bottle that I was given on the night as well. It was, it was truly memorable. Have you opened that one? No. Or you're saving it? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm saving it. I don't know why I'm saving it. I just, we always get given bottles of the first releases. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've got a nice little collection building mm-hmm. up. But whiskey's to be drunk, not to be flipped, I think. So down the line, it will get opened at some point just mm-hmm. for posterity or whatever. Yeah. And it's, you've won so many awards. Yes. It's oh, up, my goodness. You know, it's yeah. been lauded left, right and center. Yeah. Dan's, Dan's quite modest about it. So all our awards are in the toilets at the distillery. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've, we've won various golds at San Francisco. Um, we've won best craft distillery at the Icons of Whiskey globally. Because you never know what's going to come out of the barrel. No, 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 no. And as a young distillery, one thing that all people always say to us is, you know, it's only three years old. Why why should we even give it the time? Yeah, that too. And Mm -hmm. there are so many different reasons why we've been able to release three-year-old whiskey that tastes good as opposed to just releasing it for the sake of financial gain. Mm -hmm. Um, We worked quite closely with Professor Jim Swan. Mm -hmm. He's, in the background, been able to work with quite a lot of the young distilleries in the world. So Cavalan, uh, Annandale, Penderin, Kilcorman, to name but a few of the young distilleries that have credibility on a world stage within whiskey. Mm-hmm. And he worked with us. And we, I think we were one of the last ones he worked with before he passed away. But his ethos was using active casks, making the right decisions within the whiskey process at each point. So, you know, long fermentation, high cut points from the spirit still, choosing your grain, um, making sure you've got the, the right yeast strains, make sure your flavor profile is established before it goes in the barrel so that you can emphasize instead of create a flavor with barrels as well. Just devil in the detail sort of things that really have been able to allow us to take a whiskey to market that on paper is young, but the liquid is delicious. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I walk into establishments and on paper I'm a three-year-old English whiskey rep. <laughs> but the liquid speaks for itself and that's... No, you're a Cotswold. I'm a Cotswold, Cotswold whiskey rep, yes. Now, yeah. now the gin, because he was such a whiskey gentleman, um, did he poo-poo gin or, you know, how did you... You know, there's a lot of gin out there. What was he thinking for the first gin? Well, the gin was always going to be something that would help us... Um, establish the brand more than anything, mm-hmm. especially in the export market, which is quite key to whiskey. Um, and Dan is a spirits fan. You know, if if you ever meet him, and I, I hope you come up to the distillery and you will, he is a spirits fan as well as a whiskey fan. You know, we um, when we work with people, we try and work with people that are quite reputable in the business because we're also fans of the industry as well as producers. Um, and so for gin, we just wanted to make a really solid gin kind of like Brook Laddie, you know, a really great gin in the botanist, but loads of different terroir-driven um, expressions of whiskey. Um, and so with the gin, you know, like most whiskey distillers, you do it for cash flow, mm-hmm. but also to establish the brand. Um, but if you're going to do it, do it right. And so whilst the gin market is saturated, even from when I was in retail, you know, I had 150 gins to retail on the list. Cotswolds was always my go-to because for a gin and tonic gin, it's so juniper forward. It's wonderful. I brought you a bottle, by the way. 
Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> but, you know, something that you also create that I love are a limited batches of, you know, sometimes crazy things in a bottle, like espresso martini in yeah. a bottle. Yep. You know, an absinthe. Where did those come out of? So we're quite keen on tourism as well. The Cotswolds has, don't quote me on this, but I think it's a few million people visit on an annual basis. Yeah, I think after London, it's the second most yeah, popular place right. yeah. to visit in yeah. the UK. And so, if, on, Or England, I'm not sure. On the basis uh-huh. of that, tourism was always going to be something that helped us to establish ourselves whilst waiting for whiskey as well. So we do three tours a day, seven days a week at the distillery. Um, and you get to come and go into the production facility, see the stills, see Lorelei and Dolly, the gin stills, see Mary and Janice, the whiskey stills, see the barrel room as well, where everything's aging and that wonderful aroma of, you know, ethanol and wood and oak and all that sort of amazing uh, environment as well. And if you're going to come and visit a distillery in the early days when we had a gin and a very, 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 very young spirit, you kind of need to be able to diversify. And we have a research and development lab and a research and development team that just have a huge amount of curiosity as well. So um, we've worked with various people, but yeah, we we did a distilled espresso martini with a local uh, coffee house. We made a Geneva for the birth, with the Shakespeare's anniversary, because um, we're half an hour away from Stratford-upon-Avon. So we wanted to make a Geneva. We can't call it Geneva because we're in England and not Holland. So uh, we did that. We we made a cream liqueur, which on paper you would sort of go, but it's the most delicious thing ever. Um, what else have we made? Cocktail And can bitters. you get those only if you You can get them at the distillery, distillery? or online, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people in the trade are always asking, you know, can we get absinthe? Can we get this? Can we get that? And really, we'd love to be able to do that, but we only make 16 bottles of absinthe per batch. Oh, really tiny? Yeah, tiny, tiny, Mm. yeah. So we can't really commercially do it. And we want people to be able to get things at the distillery and have an exclusivity to it as well. But the research and development lab are always working on new things. You know, six or seven different gin recipes that have come out of it as well. Um, We're making a vermouth We've made a summer cup as well. So you're back to your um, wine roots. Yeah. I mean, I have nothing to do with it, unfortunately. Uh. But yeah, we worked with uh, Woodchester Valley, which is a, uh, a winery in Gloucestershire. So we were using Cotswolds grapes. Mm-hmm. We made uh, we made an apple brandy using a local pear, no, a local apple ciders farm, Mike Pearson in Morton Marsh. We used his apple must, uh, made an apple brandy because Dan's quite a Francophile as well. So we made a Pomo de Normandy. The apple brandy we called Cotswolvados. <laughs> they didn't find that very funny in uh, the Pay Doge, but it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we try and champion as much as we can around the Cotswolds and just make interesting spirits. Well, it sounds like it. Can we go try some now? Yeah, absolutely. Because you've made me super thirsty. Yeah, let's do it. As far as Cotswold spirits are concerned, Rob had this to say. I always say that with our products... You have a starter, a main course, and a dessert. The martini is always going to be the starter, but the main course is our whiskey. We wanted to make something that was Cotswold-centric, so we only use barley from single estates in the Cotswolds, but we wanted it to be flavorful. So we make a really fruity style of whiskey. Um, 
Long fermentation allows a really fruit flavor. We also use reconditioned red wine STR casks. STR stands for shaved, toasted, and recharred. And that allows a really beautiful red fruit flavor to come through the barrels. Uh, and then we use a little bit of bourbon cask. So the whiskey has this wonderful dried apricot peach with um, walnuts and hazelnuts and then a little bit of honey and butterscotch in there as well. It's quite a flavor journey, but it's really approachable. All natural color, natural flavor. Um, I highly recommend just having a dram as it is. It doesn't need anything. But if you need a highball in the summer or you want to make an old-fashioned or you want to make a Manhattan, super applicable as well. Thanks so much to Rob for being on the show. If you're in the Cotswolds, make sure to visit the distillery. But now it's time for the cocktail of the week. Rob calls our cocktail of the week the Cotswolds Martini. But it could also have been named so many other things. The name of the cocktail is a classic martini in fashion, but there was actually quite a large debate about it on London Bartender Association when I posed the question, what is a dry martini with no vermouth and an absinthe rinse? Some people said it was a turf club. Some people said it was a tuxedo. Um, Yet to have a name, but it's really, really simple. It is our Cotswolds absinthe in an atomizer. Spray it on the inside of your uh, Nick and Nora martini glass. 60 ml of Cotswolds dry gin, stirred down to dilution, and then just express a little bit of grapefruit peel over the top. Classic martini, but so delicious. If you didn't get that, I'll go through it again. You'll need Cotswolds gin, as well as Cotswolds absinthe, a grapefruit peel, and a Nicanora glass. Begin by stirring 60 ml of Cotswolds dry gin in a mixing glass for 90 seconds or until the dilution is just perfect. Then spritz the Cotswolds absinthe twice into that Nicanora martini glass. Strain your gin into the glass that you've just spritzed. Then express some grapefruit oil over the top and discard the peel. If that's too complicated, just simply pour 60 ml of Cotswold Single Malt Whiskey into a Glencairn whiskey glass and think about life. You'll find this martini recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. For those of you interested in the Cotswolds Cocktail Competition, I'll let Rob describe it to you. Yeah, so we will be doing a cocktail competition, a national cocktail competition, in which we'll be doing uh, whiskey and gin entries, in which we'll ask people to do short and tall serves of whiskey and gin. They can choose which one they do. Uh, Entries will be open at the end of April. We'll do regional finals. And then we will have the finals at our whiskey festival at the distillery in August. So watch this space, watch London Bartender Association and visit our website. And there will be more details very, very soon about our national cocktail competition. We'll be in Charleston next week. So join us after Easter with Monica Berg as she moves from behind the bar to bar owner and so much more. Before running off, remember to head to alushlifemanual.com slash merch for all your Lush Life gifts. Until next time, bottoms up.
thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, plus a whole lot more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. The music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.